we are far less in control of what we eat and the choices we make about food on our plate than we think. So at the end of the day, we are upholding a food system that is enjoying subsidies and that is not paying for the true external cost, the full cost of the supply chain. What is the true cost of meat? The reality of the situation is that less than 5% of all meat on the planet that is consumed is organic or grass-fed or wild or pasture-fed or whatever. Welcome back to The Purpose Effect, the podcast about purpose-driven businesses and what we can learn about solving some of the world's biggest problems from the women who are solving them. I'm Elena Kersey, and I'm on a mission to learn how we can build better, better work, stronger communities, a healthier planet. If you believe there's a better world out there waiting for us, then this podcast is for you. To kick off this season, I have a very special episode because Will Cheshire, the host of Talking Solutions, has agreed to co-host this episode with me. And I'm super excited to have you here. So thank you, Will, for doing this with me. Thanks for having me on, Elena. I'm excited as well. This should be a really good conversation. I really enjoyed being on your podcast last year, Will. And if you haven't listened to Talking Solutions, it's a great podcast with conversations with entrepreneurs and thought leaders who are solving some of the world's biggest social environmental problems. Definitely check it out. But since we did that episode together, Will, I've been looking for a way for us to collaborate together again. And I think we found it in this conversation. We are talking to Sonali Figueras, the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen. Green Queen is a media publication based out of Hong Kong, which focuses on climate issues and advocates for social and environmental change. Sonali has really been a force in shaping and spotlighting this conversation, certainly in Asia for the last 12 years, but also globally. And Green Queen is a really trusted voice when it comes to reporting on climate news. But I think where Green Queen has really focused recently is on the impact that food has and the way we eat has on the climate. And this is what Will and I are talking to Sonalia about today. This conversation is really for the many of us who don't realize how big of an impact the way we eat has on the climate. And it's also for those of us who would like to learn how we can make more conscious food choices. And hopefully, if enough of us do that, it might have a ripple effect on changing the way food is produced. Um, I have to say the part of the conversation that was really impressed upon me is the urgency of the situation. I have the perspective that here in Asia, a lot of the focus is on waste reduction or plastic reduction or circular business models and all of the impacts that those have on climate change and less of the impact that food has. And I'm interested to know from your perspective, being based in the US and now in Europe, how do you see the conversation? Are people talking about the importance of changing the way we eat and the urgency in changing the way we eat with the same intensity that they're talking about other parts of the climate problem? Yeah, I mean, I'll speak more on, on the U.S. factor of it and a localized version of the U.S. from the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area, right, which which tends to be a little bit more um, aware of these type of issues and it's more pressing to them. When I think about my friends and the family members that I know in the U.S., there's nobody I know that's really a vegetarian, you know, because of the climate and because of the issues that are that are at hand. Um, I know a few people who are trying to eat less meat, specifically red meat. That's something in the U.S., but that's a little bit contrary to some of my experiences in Europe. I'll come across people and they're like, yeah, yeah, we're vegetarian. It's mainly because of the climate. And then also, you know, there are some health reasons behind it as well. So that's one glaring difference is just at the individual level in my anecdotal experience, the people from Europe tend to be more aware of the impact food has. That's interesting because I wanted to ask you what you thought about what are the low-hanging solutions when it comes to 
changing the way we eat because one thing that really came out of the conversation that we had with Sonali was one, how divisive the conversation can be, how personal it is, how ingrained food is in our culture, in our religion, in the way we gather as communities. So changing that is a big thing because it has a huge impact on lifestyle. So did you have a sense in the conversation of some immediate changes? When you and Sonali were talking about regenerative farming, that was when the penny dropped from me because the solution is not scalable um, and not scalable for a planet of 8 billion people of whom a large proportion as they become wealthier could start consuming more meat. So what are some of the easier to implement solutions? that we can all take. Yeah, well, I think one thing, you know, that we had in the conversation that really stood out was the conversation about being open-minded and something that she alluded to which I thought was a huge a really important point was being open-minded and not judging anybody on their decisions. And I'll speak primarily from a US perspective where, you know, the conversation is always more about attacking than it is about like actually moving the needle forward. Um and then I think from there you can really start to make some progress. Some things that we can do is on a real local level is you can just go buy from your local food markets instead of going to a big superstore, if you will. In the U.S., we have huge grocery stores. Everybody wants to go shopping like once a month, <laughs> twice a month or whatever, and just buy in bulk. You know, everybody loves Costco, right? Something that you see in Europe and in, and in other places as well is people shop more frequently because the food is more localized and it's not preserved. It's not shipped in from millions of miles away. So... I think that's another step people can take is just make an effort to go to your local farmer's market. You know, regenerative farming as we know it at this stage would be very difficult to scale like that. You know, like it just probably won't work as a solution. Um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't play a big role. So you should go into farmer's markets, get to know the farmers a little bit, learn about where this food has come and make a conscious effort of buying local fruits and vegetables, right? Um, that are in season as well. Yeah. I mean, the other point that Sonali made, which I think is really important, is we have to understand the way we eat across socioeconomic lines, right? Because presumably there are some parts of the US where even if you wanted to shop at a local farmer's market, you might not be able to access one either because they don't exist in your neighborhood or because they're just not affordable. So in the interests of no judgment, also not shaming people for food choices, particularly at this moment in time when a lot of parts of everybody's lives are becoming a lot more expensive. Yeah, and busy. Yeah. Expensive and busy. And you know, and one thing I think Sonali said that really I think was important to when you have a an ease of a solution for food sometimes is is a nice way to get things off your back. It's difficult to balance all that with work and then food and then care. And so I think if we can try to free up a little bit more time as well, that would be beneficial too. Yes. And I think that is where the alt meat industry is providing a solution to a specific problem, right? Because we don't need to change the way we eat or the amount of time it takes for us to cook with certain alt meat products. They are designed to replicate, you know, a burger or chicken nuggets and still give you that taste and texture, but also the convenience that comes along with it. And, and again, what Sonali does and, and the education that she provides with all these alternative, whether it be cell-based meats, plant-based meats, and, and a lot of the different alternatives that she covers throughout her publications, I think it's important that we start to integrate these things because there's a common goal, but there just seems to be a lot of different ways to get there. And then the sides seem to be pitted against each other instead of facing a common enemy. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend or, or however the, the thing <laughs> yeah. goes, you know, so maybe... <laughs> Maybe that is. I know that's a, it's more difficult to say and there are other reasons that, you know, they don't like one side or the other or anything like that. But I do think if you go in with an open mind and you have a conversation with someone, uh, even somebody who might say, oh, I'm never going to change my ways. I'm just going to eat meat because I love meat and, and all that. I think if, if you treated it and went in with a good conversation, I think you'd find an understanding and you'd see some compromise between both of the sides and say, like, this sucks. Or just try it, right? Like, yeah. just try a plant-based burger patty. Just try it. You know, you can use the same rationale that I use with my kids when I'm trying to get them to try a new food, which is one bite. If you don't like it, you don't have to finish it. 
you know, just try it. Because I, for the first time after our conversation, purchased plant-based minced meat. And I, I think you and I have had this conversation. My position had always been, look, I don't need these alternative meat products. I just won't eat meat. I personally don't eat a huge amount of meat anyway, but my, the rest of my family do. And so my position was, we'll just substitute the meat that we're eating with vegetables more often. We don't need alternatives. But that is only a small solve for our particular family, right? Some people need meat. They want to have a burger every now and then, or they want to be able to go to a friend's barbecue and know that there's going to be something that they can eat at the table. So for all of those people, there needs to be a solution. And also for all of the people who need to feed fussy kids, there needs to be a solution. So that was my solution. I bought plant-based mints and I substituted half of the meat in the bolognese with this Everybody ate it. Just like that. No problem. Just like that. Just like that. Yeah. And I think that's an important step. You don't have to just take a big jump in. You know, you could kind of take that step and kind of move your way into it. And I think if you eliminate the stigma behind it as well, again, some of that polarization, you will get people to be a little bit more willing to go out and try it because they're not, they're not feeling like they're succumbing or they're losing or, you know, whatever. When it comes to the climate and sustainability, there's no denying the negative effects of what the factory farming specifically, you know, and the methane that gets produced and all of that, that kind of goes into that. And that is negative. And we have to do it at an individual level. Us as consumers are going to be it. So, you know, if everybody starts doing that and starts buying less and less of that meat, and, you know, companies are going to change. Uh, think about that. That's one thing fast food companies do well. And think about how much in the past that they would just do, oh, we want Coke and Big Macs and super larges. Next thing you know, now you go to a McDonald's when you can get salads and, you know, all these much healthier options now. Um, the kids' meals actually have healthier stuff. Why did they do that? Well, because consumers demanded they wanted, hey, we love the convenience. We love how quick we can get the food, but we want a healthier option. So if we continue to preach that, they will adapt. I think the companies will or new ones will pop up to fit the consumer demand. Yeah. I mean, we do vote with our dollars. And I believe that there are some fast food chains who are also using plant-based uh, oh, yeah. burgers. So, yeah, I mean... It might seem overwhelming, the scale of the problem and how difficult it is to create solutions that can scale, um, but we can, on an individual level, make small changes. Um, yeah, so I wanted to ask, what about you? After the conversation, did you change anything immediately or have you been more conscious about the choice you make when you're confronted with a, a menu, for example, or when you're at the supermarket? Yeah, I went out with a friend uh, a couple weeks ago and we went to just a vegetarian restaurant and I had a Beyond Meat burger, um, which was nice. I'm investing in Beyond Meat stock. So, you know, I got to show a oh. little support. <laughs> um, that's voting with your dollars. Yeah, that's voting with the dollars a little bit there. And then most importantly, what I've been trying to do, which is easier in Europe just because of the cultural change uh, and just the way that they approach food, uh, is just shopping locally. Uh, but another thing is uh, that I wanted to go about because I do have the, the podcast with solutions. It was just going in with an open mind and then like going to challenge some of my friends. So, hey, why are you eating, you know, X and X amount of red meat? Well, because, you know, screw those other people who think that they can take my meat, you know, and this is probably more uniquely a U.S. issue. But, you know, just kind of going in with a constructive criticism approach and just saying like, well, actually, these have been linked to these bad diets, you know, so you should focus on, you know, going to the health, number one, because that's what kind of affects you first and foremost. Uh, but then I think from a sustainability perspective as well, as I mentioned, I have a lot of friends who are in the Seattle area. They're very much big believers in climate change. They will do a lot of things to try to um, promote messages that combat it in a healthy way. But like I told you, I don't know a single one of them that uh, are vegetarian or are being more conscious about the amount of meat that they eat. So that's something that I think I'll bring up to them. They'll obviously be receptive about it. Well, I think the other thing that... I thought was an extremely helpful point in terms of trying to foster a respectful conversation is inviting people around for a meal and cooking something that is vegetarian or even vegetarian and dairy-free, egg-free, 
you know, everyone can have their position of what they want to eat in their own homes. But if you invite somebody to eat at your table, I think that that fosters a lot of respectful conversation because it's try it. Eat this food. It'll be delicious. Yeah. Like nobody cares. If you just invite people over, don't mention anything. Just say, hey, I'm making good food. They're going to eat it and be like, wow, this is good. And then you say, oh, it's vegetarian. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. Can awesome. I have the recipe? Well, what is it? Yeah, what's the recipe? Let me make it. Um, I think I thought when she said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's such a really good way to break yourself into that conversation and kind of actually open that person up a little bit more. So on that note, let's not leave our friends listening in waiting any longer. And let's dive into our conversation with Sonali Figueres, the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen, a platform that is really leading this conversation about food and its impact on climate change. But before we do, I'm going to pour myself a hug in a mug with a cup of tea bird tea. I love tea bird tea, and not just because the packaging is absolutely beautiful, although it is, or because the tea is organic and comes in biodegradable tea bags, although it does but because I love the way T-Bird Tea's founder, Ashley Cotterell, uses her business to support other businesses doing good. Ashley partners with brands and not-for-profits doing good for people and planet because she believes that this is how you build sustainable businesses. And I couldn't agree more. So if you want delicious, healthy, beautifully packaged tea that makes impact, you can get 20% off using the code HUGINAMUG20. I'd recommend the Earl Grey and Orange. It's my favorite. The really big, important message that I hope people take away from today is one that too few people are aware of, which is that we will not solve the climate crisis without rethinking our global food system. One third of all global greenhouse gas emissions come from food production. So unfortunately, um, the mainstream media does not reflect this in their climate crisis coverage. And most of the coverage that you see will be around weather and energy and transport, EV, et cetera. But the reality of the situation is that probably as a group, food is, is the largest kind of carbon budget and, and other greenhouse gas budget. The landmark report that really set this in motion, I would say, is the 2006 UN FAO report that connected livestock agriculture with emissions. And that's where it really the global conversation kind of changed, but it really took until I would say another landmark moment when The Guardian published this article in 2018, um, basically said, we cannot meet the Paris 2030 goals and we cannot stop global warming and the worsening effects of climate change on if we don't significantly reduce meat and dairy consumption. Now, the reality of the situation is that if tomorrow we could all agree to just focus on eating fruits, nuts, pulses, beans, seeds, legumes, and vegetables and grains, uh, we'd be fine. But I personally, I do not believe that that is where we're going to get to from a cultural and behavioral and social change point of view. The reality is, is that meat and animal protein specifically plays a very specific role uh, and unique role in our food culture, in our kind of nutrition pyramid, in our history as a species. And just kind of rubbing that all out and just going completely whole food plant-based as yeah. overnight for 8 million people is, is not something I consider realistic. And so for me personally, I was running a green media company. I started Green Queen, which is the first sustainable impact media in Asia. And today is a global reference for food and climate reporting. And so for me, I believed at that point that the climate crisis was going to become more acute. And I felt that as a media company that focused on the environment and consumer behavior and how we can change and kind of solutions for the future that were, that were inspiring. I felt it was time for us to make that break and stop covering anything to do with animal agriculture. And that included eggs and seafood as well as like meat and dairy. Now I did not originally come to this conversation from an ethical veganism point of view. That's not my journey. My journey started with health and then the environment and then later 
the ethical part really kicked in for me. You know, I think that we're still very, very far away from a world where you could just impose strict veganism on everyone. I agree. Our food cultures are not going to accept changing the way we eat overnight or just completely removing meat from our diets overnight. But besides this sort of awareness of what you wanted to do from a business perspective, was there a personal moment or a a penny drop moment for you which made you realize that you wanted to spotlight this issue and you also wanted to change the way you were eating? To be honest, the business answer would have been to keep platforming meat. I would have made a lot more money in advertiser dollars. So I actually came at it from a very activist point of view. Mm -hmm. So it was very personal. Um, and it was a great cost in a, in a region where what I was talking about and a decision like that just like did not make sense to most people around me. And it took years before there was a payoff in terms of people going, Oh, that was, you know, forward there. And I think it, it, it spoke a lot to, to our ability at Green Queen to have credibility. Um, but it wasn't an easy decision at all. I think we need to be aware that we are actually running out of land. We're running out of energy. We're running out of water. And what I'm hearing in the questions you're asking are in a way almost a, a set of assumptions that reflects the problem with how the media portrays the food and climate question. Let's unpack that for a bit because I think that's really interesting. And I completely accept that I am a creature of the media I've consumed. So do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Absolutely. We are far less in control of what we eat and the choices we make about food on our plate than we think. So at the end of the day, we are upholding a food system that is enjoying subsidies and that is not paying for the true external cost, the full cost of the supply chain. There was a very famous documentary that came out about fashion a few years ago called The True Cost. It really made a dent in people's mindsets about, you know, labor and ethical supply chains for fashion. And we are in the food world, I think we're still really reckoning with that. What is the true cost of meat? The reality of the situation is that less than 5% of all meat on the planet that is consumed is organic or grass-fed or wild or pasture-fed or whatever it is that all these terms yeah. signify. So they do not represent a solution that scales for 8 billion people. And meat does have a very special role in our society. And there is a phenomenon that economists call Bennett's Law, whereby as societies get richer, they increase the percentage of animal protein and food in their diet. And historically, meat is something that was scarce and difficult to procure. And so there's a status connection for most people between animal meat, especially beef, right? And, and that makes it difficult to just immediately overnight change the culture. Yeah. When you're talking about the food lobbyists and the food network and everything of that nature. But what I'm really curious about is we're talking a lot about the culture of meat and how much ingrained it is. So obviously where alternative meat or plant-based meat might come into the perspective is trying to become a solution for that as well. So I'd love to know a little bit about how this alternative meat can kind of come in from that kind of cultural perspective and transition into a solution for uh, this type of issue? So I'm going to take a tiny step back and say that there's the alternative meat industry within the alternative protein industry within what I will call the future food, food tech, alternative food industry. So if you separate out the cultural stuff, the health stuff, we have a crunch in resources. That's table stakes. That's basics. So we absolutely need innovation and, and design thinking and systems-based solutions to 
find a way to kind of rejig our global food systems to make them more resilient and to increase food security. There is a big difference between plant-based meat, precision fermentation, dairy, cultivated meat or seafood. These are all different technologies with different paths to market, with different costs, with different pros and cons. But what is uniting all of them is that I would say 90% of the founders of these companies are looking to solve that exact issue that you just brought up, Will, which is allowing people to consume the foods that they love without too much of a sacrifice, without the environmental sacrifice, but also without the taste sacrifice and the nutrient sacrifice and the format sacrifice. Like you can cook it in the same way that you would the animal version. So so they are all coming at it from this idea. So Beyond Meat, the famous plant-based burger company was founded in 2009. Impossible came along in 2011. And now you have over a thousand companies in this space across the world. About 120 of those are cultivated companies. So that is based on cellular agriculture. So the idea is you take a cell from an animal and you then feed that cell in a bioreactor in a liquid medium and you essentially grow animal flesh or animal fat or tissue the same way you would kind of grow a liver for a liver transplant. So that is one technology. Another technology is precision fermentation, which is where you program microbes or bacteria with the DNA recipe of a protein. So this is happening for whey protein or casein protein, both proteins in dairy. And that is a technology that we use anyway already to make things like insulin for diabetics, for type 1 diabetics. It is, But we also use it all the time to make uh, vegetarian rennet, which is in 80% of commercial cheese. And then each of them has their own recipes and technologies. But that was really the shift is that you went from like what felt very much like a piece of tofu with flavorings to this kind of minced meat texture that people could feel was satisfying, especially in a burger or a meatball or a dumpling. Do we know anything about the health benefits or health risks of some of these new technologies when applied to food production? Extrusion as a process is is not super new. This may be newly applied to uh, soybeans or mung beans, but we consume all these foods anyway. So I think the the whole health argument is frankly overblown, and I consider it to honestly be one of the tactics of big meat to discredit this industry. And once again, like who is asking that question? Is it the person that's going to McDonald's and eating a McDonald's burger? Or is it a person who is cooking a grass-fed steak in their upper middle class neighborhood barbecue? Right? Because a lot of these products exist to solve the mass livestock meat problem. Not the wealthy shops at Whole Foods is very, very conscientious about what they buy problem. Let's also talk about all the alternatives. There are over 800 plant-based meat, seafood, and dairy brands in the world. And they all do different things. And their labels all look different. And for example, in Singapore, there's a company called Karana, and they make a meat alternative from jackfruit that is regeneratively grown in Sri Lanka. To me, that's not the same product as an impossible burger, which proudly is made from non-GMO soy and contains fermented heme in order to give it a bloodiness and, a, and an iron-rich mouthfeel. Um, those products are targeting different people, and that's great. We have choice. And then we have Fable Foods in Australia that is creating alternatives for mushrooms. And it is literally just real mushrooms. They're just growing the mushrooms and they're just treating them in a way to like remove the moisture so that the texture is more similar to meat and they're more easy to use. So I think there are plenty of choices for customers that are health motivated. 
I still think that there are some people that are not health motivated and really, really, really love the taste of industrial meat. And we need transition foods for them. And I think companies like Impossible and Beyond do a great job of providing those alternatives. So one thing that I'm hearing in my anecdotal experience as well with talking to some people across, and this is from more of a U.S. perspective where we, you know, obviously farming is huge, particularly in the Midwest, is there seems to be a mutual understanding and a a strong dislike for industrial foods, factory farming, all of that type of stuff as well. So, for example, I've talked to many people who cannot stand any of that meat stuff. Now, again, there probably are some that still go to a restaurant and will still eat some of that, like you said. But at home, they're doing their best to get locally sourced food, regenerative farming practices. They're doing their research on this farmer and they're looking at the best quality of meat that they can get uh, for exactly the same similar reasons. They think, number one, for the climate change, number two, for nutrition. Uh, in the U.S., obviously, people hunt. So you have deer hunting, things of that nature where you're getting wild meat, where obviously you know exactly where it's coming from. So my question to you is, do you see any alignment with this common goal of kind of reducing the factory farming, reducing the number between people who do want more regenerative farming practices, which, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of the environment, that's great for climate change, regenerative farming. If you can rehealth your soil and you can suck that carbon back in the air through that regeneration practices, I mean, with soil, that's fantastic. Do you see alignment in any way between these individuals who, from an ethical perspective, you may not align with because they do enjoy the the taste of animals and eat it, but they do have the same common goal in terms of climate change as well. How do you kind of see, if any, alignment there to market to some of those? Because you you made a comment earlier about, you know, the people who like industrialized meat are going to go towards Beyond Meat possible. I don't know if I agree with that. I think that they would probably be more inclined to go find something that's more local then they would to switch to a plant-based meat because they're going to be skeptical for a while. So curious to hear your thoughts on that and what your opinion is there because I see a common goal just with a little bit of different opinion on, on how to approach the solution. Yeah, no, totally. So I didn't say that consumers would want plant-based meat. I said that customers who eat industrial meat, that's what plant-based meat okay. companies are trying to solve for is to meet customers where they are. So if they're eating cheap industrial meat to provide them with cheese meat that tastes tastes the same and looks the same and like subs in. Do I think that there are alignments between regenerative beef folks and alternative protein folks deep down? I think yes. There is a lot of alignment. Um, I think that regenerative farming, leaving aside meat, is an interesting uh, solution. And it is one that you know, a lot of people truly believe in. I think that there are issues with the term regenerative because it is undefined um, and unstandardized. But I do think there is alignment in some ways. What I have seen happen in the last 18 months is that there seems to be a, a strong polarization between regenerative beef and alternative proteins. And for me, I just think we need all the solutions. There is no silver bullet. There are all kinds of people at all in all kinds of countries eating all kinds of things with all kinds of habits and food cultures and nutritional needs. And I am just not such a believer in like the one or the other approach. Um, I don't think the data is there for a planet that supports 8 billion people eating as much meat as we do with regenerative beef or regenerative chicken or regenerative dairy? There is no data because it's going to be... I don't think you can do it at scale, just like you said at the very beginning of the podcast. You know, I think the the question I had was very much in, in what your answer was, which is how can you, though, try to create this movement and then have it be less polarized? It is polarized on both sides. And to me, I think that that's kind of counterintuitive because it's infighting maybe not necessarily infighting is the right word because there are differences, but that common goal is still to improve the climate. And, you know, and some people believe that the regenerative farming will help you know, actually reduce climate change, right? And then on the flip side of that, for the plant-based products and the alternative meat, um, cell-based different solutions, that's also going to be great for the climate and things of that nature. So I'm trying to figure out and think of, 
Is there a way where you can kind of somehow bring these people together? I agree with you. I think that there is infighting and it is very, very, very unfortunate. So I think that it is also, there's a cultural element to it. There's also a social media factor involved here. Like we're not really in an age of nuance. We're in an age of extremes. But usually when I talk to the average person away from the noise, I would think that they seem aligned somewhat with what you're saying, which is that there are occasions for plant-based meat. There are occasions for grass-fed meat. There is overall an understanding for anyone who knows about climate that we need to reduce overall meat consumption. And I think most people's goal would be to get to a mostly whole food plant-based diet goal. But how realistic that is for each individual is, is up and down. But certainly when I'm in Europe and I talk to Europeans, it, there, there seems to be a little bit more of a balanced view um, about where these solutions fit and how they could all be within one big basket. What can we do to foster more of these conversations in these markets? Are you seeing any interesting educational initiatives, maybe through not-for-profits or governments happening in a really localized way? And is there anything that other markets can learn from these? I think... What's really driving a lot of this is also a younger generation that is much more, the word I would use is, is flat. Like Gen Z is, is often described as the flattest generation in the world, whereby no matter where you are, you find a Gen Z, they seem to have very, very common cultural touch points. They are using the same mobile phone. They have very similar fashion music references and they are very, very um, aware of the climate crisis. And that is driving a lot of grassroots activism around diet and environment. There's a lot more data showing that younger consumers, so below 25, are reducing meat intake and are much more curious and interested in, um, in alternatives, right? Or in following a more ethical and more sustainable diet. Because for them, the climate crisis is much more urgent and much more visible. The average Gen Z is aware of, you know, Greta Thunberg and has like maybe participated in a strike and has learned about the crisis at school. The, the ratio of their life that has, that has been spent around the climate crisis is very different than a millennial. And then forget about a boomer, right? And some of the research shows that it's the younger people that are essentially convincing the older generations to eat less meat. And I think that the purchasing power of Gen Z is about to become incredibly important. There's about to be like, I think, 3 billion of them, and they're about to control a huge amount of market purchasing power, and that's going to change what's at the store. In what way do you think Gen Z and the knowledge that they're getting, obviously platforms like your, like the Green Queen is a great way for them to kind of learn about alternatives and to kind of get that idea to, hey, do I want to do something that's more plant-based? Do I want to do alternative meat and to apply some of these principles into their uh, daily lives? I mean, I think I would say maybe don't do anything drastic. The first thing you can maybe do is, is take an interest in the subject by maybe signing up to the newsletter, you know, and just kind of seeing what you read and like what appeals to you. I think everyone has a different kind of green door that they walk through to make changes in their life. And I think you have to do what feels right for you and you have to, you have to know why you're doing things. I think that there are certain documentaries you can watch that can kind of open those doors for you. There are books you can read. I mean, we have some of those resources on the site, but overall, I think, you know, just being more mindful around what's on your plate. You know, where did it come from? You know, can you waste less food? Can you maybe a couple times a week not have meat on the plate? You know, can you commit to a more whole food plant-based diet? And maybe, maybe one day you're like, you think to yourself, oh, I want to have, you know, a burger night, but I want it to be a little more conscious. So you choose a plant-based burger patty. And again, even then, you know, you can choose one made from black beans and you can choose one made, 
you know, from extruded soy protein. I mean, I think, I think the idea is like little steps, but also kind of understanding why are you making those choices? And what I see a lot of is either someone has had a major health scare, in which case I notice suddenly it's very easy to give up animal foods immediately overnight, or someone is encouraged usually by someone in their household. So either their partner is eating plant-based or their children. And so I think little changes, opening yourself up to the information through a newsletter, watching some documentaries, and then seeing kind of what your reaction is. Most people who subscribe to Green Queen will come back to me after a few weeks and just be like, I had no idea how exciting this all was. I had no idea there were so many incredible founders all over the world just like trying to find solutions. I, I really do feel that companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods get way too much of the airwaves. There are so many exciting other things going on in the future of food. And, you know, it's, it's really not up for debate whether we need future food solutions. We do. We also need to be more mindful and respectful and learn from indigenous farming traditions. We need both. We need all of it. Do you really believe that we can change our food systems so drastically that they can, first of all, feed everybody on the planet and not destroy the planet that we have? Do you think this is even possible? I don't know. I don't think it's a definite resounding yes in my heart and in my head, but I think we got to try. And that's why I get up and do what I do every day. I think we have the ingenuity. I think we have the capacity. I think we have the solutions. I don't think we have enough government will. And I don't think we have the ideal economic system for the change to happen. And there are days when I definitely despair. And it really feels like we are not making the progress we need to make. But I would have to say that one, what else is a solution? Like not try. Two, I think if you have children, you feel like, again, you just, you have no choice. You have to give it your best college shot. And three, I feel like the younger generation really does feel more motivated. I mean, if you look at, you know, Fridays for Future and like what that movement has achieved, I think it's, it's pretty groundbreaking. And and the data that I see suggests that demographics change will bring about big change in the food system. It's just right now we're in, we're, we're not quite yet in the heart of that demographic shift. We're at the edges of it. So it, it doesn't seem possible yet. I just want to, to figure out how people can support you a little bit more and uh, the things that they can do to follow. You know, Green Queen, you mentioned earlier, you got a newsletter and a website and all that types of stuff as well. But I would love for people to contact you, follow you, social media. You mentioned kind of go in slowly and share us a little bit about that so that people can, can find you, support you and, and follow you a little bit more. Yeah, thanks so much, Will. I really appreciate that. So we're at greenqueen.com.hk, which is our website, which I would say our main kind of content platform. And then we are at, at greenqueenhk for all social media platforms. And then we have a couple of newsletters, one every week on Thursday about the future of food space and one every other Monday, which is a general sustainability and climate one. And you can email us anytime at getintouch at greenqueen.com.hk. And we're happy to kind of help anyone in their transition or in their questions. And a lot of what we're trying to do is also show that there's hope because what I'm also trying to fight is, you know, climate anxiety and climate depression because it can be hard not to feel completely overwhelmed. And so there's also a, a part of, hey, look at all these really cool humans doing really cool things on a topic that I think we all care about. I mean, food is probably the most universal thing that we do other than breathing as humans. We don't all love sports. We don't all have the same religion. We don't all have the same culture and nationality, but we all eat every day. So it is a uniter in many ways. And most of the time when I get people around a table and we all hang out, even if we're from completely different points of view, most people find common ground 
in good food and respectful conversation. Actually, I think that is the most useful takeaway from this conversation. If you want to change the conversation, particularly around something that is both as unifying, but also, yeah, divisive, I guess, as food, bring people around a table. When you're breaking down like a really big problem, I always like to think about what is the next best step? And I think this is the next best step and a really achievable one. Bring people together to eat and talk about it. That is what I do. I never, in my personal life, you will be surprised to know, I never talk about what I do and I never talk about alternative proteins. I, I am a cook though. I love to feed people and I just make good food. And I don't really talk about the fact that it's vegan or not. I just make good food that people like to eat and that's it. And then people call me up and they're like, what's that recipe or what did I eat? And that's great. And that's where I'm coming from as like a mom feeder type person in my personal life. You know, I like always joke that I'm half Hindu. And so I just, I'm not a, I don't believe in converting people to things. I just, that is not how I, I, that's not how I want to be talked to. And that's not what I think maybe will work. And there are people who disagree with me. I think there's, there are people who believe conversion is the way and certainly it can work. But I think most people are coming from a fairly reasonable point of view. And as I said, they just want to eat good food and hang out and chat. And that is a more kind of realistic way to, to engage with, with people about this, this very kind of, important topic. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree. And I think another factor in trying to get people to engage with this topic is the language we use, particularly when we talk about future food, because the language I find is very scientific and it doesn't sound like we're talking about food. It sounds like we're talking about, you know, technology products. Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation and a problem that the industry is facing. One critique I would say I have of of the all protein industry, and, and that you know I share this all the time with with the industry, you know, in our echo chamber, is that I don't think that we've done a particularly good job at marketing, at branding, at consumer engagement, and there is too much of a focus on the tech and less of a focus on the food. And we've forgotten that food tech is food, and food is highly highly cultural. It relates to identity. It relates to, you know, family. It relates to your grandmother, you know, it's very personal. There's, there's something very primal about food. And I don't know that the industry is doing a great job of, of communicating that. And, and obviously it's a very new industry and we're still bringing talent to it. And to be honest, most of the teams of these startups, they didn't start out with marketing and branding and consumer engagement heavy teams, right? It was more tech teams and business ops teams and science R&D teams. And so there's an explanation for it, but it really is time for us to step up in that game and, and, and talk about food the way people want to hear about food. And to add to that, the industry, I think, has missed out on a really important consumer. And that is the, the female household leader consumer, where if you look at consumer data um, and economics data, something like 80% of household buying decisions, purchasing decisions at the grocery store are made by women. And that includes everything from food to cleaning products to personal care products, right? Most of the time it is a woman making those decisions for her household, whether she is in a, in a partnership or in a family with children situation or with elderly relatives to look after. Um, and n- almost none of the marketing seems to be geared towards that person who, who shops and, and often prepares the food as well. And I think that's been a huge mistake because I actually think that that consumer would be very motivated by some of the points in the mission statement of an alternative protein company. Um, I should have mentioned that Green Queen has a cookbook. It has a zero-waste vegan cookbook that I co-wrote with a nutritionist, uh, like a vegan nutritionist. Um, and, but it's, it's a very kind of 
family cookbook with um, uh, meal plans. And it's all, it's very Asian food heavy um, because I felt like we just didn't have enough Asian plant-based recipes out there. And it's very kind of zero waste approach. So Will, I think you would like it because like the way we approach the sourcing of the ingredients is very much around some of the things you and I talked about earlier. And yeah, it's, you, it's a, it's a PDF that you can download on the website. Um, and it's got lots of inspiration that is delicious. Yeah. I seen that and I will also put links to that in the show notes so that everyone else can take a look and download it and have new, more climate friendly options for, for their families, which I think is really important specifically with children. Um, but thank you again, Sonali. Really, really enjoyed this chat. Looking forward to seeing more of the news coming out of Green Queen, specifically in the alt um, meat space and specifically here in Asia, because I know that Singapore in particular is really positioning itself as a destination for innovators in the space. And I'm excited to see what solutions are coming out of this, this part of the world. Yeah, and Sonali, thank you so much for your time out of your busy, busy work life to come on and uh, speak to us and share to our audience a little bit more about uh, the Green Queen, what y'all do, and, and some of these uh, alternatives and how we can make some fixes to our food system. Because as you mentioned, there are a lot of things we could have gone into as part of it that we didn't even touch today. So thanks for focusing on on, on an area that can kind of educate uh, people and allow them to go ahead with an open mind and learn, educate themselves, and, and make conscious decisions uh, through that education. With pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And thank you to you too, Will, for joining me in this conversation and providing your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do so. Very, very, very grateful for you to invite me on the show and give you an opportunity to, to kind of co-host with it. Obviously, an interesting topic for the both of us, both of us um, with an engaging solution, which I'm all about. Um, so happy to share my perspectives as well. Uh, just in my anecdotal experiences in the U.S. and, and my time in Europe and the Europeans that I know. And uh, yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime when we uh, find another in- individual that aligns with what we're trying to do as well. Yes, we should. I'm looking forward to it already. To learn more about the future of food and the impact of food on the climate, head on over to greenqueen.com.hk. All of the links to the resources Sonali mentioned are in the show notes. And if you liked hearing from Will today, then head on over to Talking Solutions. I love his show and hearing from the amazing founders and thought leaders doing great work finding solutions for some of our biggest problems. I'd love to know if in listening to this episode, it has inspired you to eat differently. And if it has, tag the purpose effect in a picture of your plant-based meal or of you trying a new plant-based food product. I would love to see it. That's it for me. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.